met this six-year-old child in this blank, pale, emotionless face. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. episode of Subconscious Realm. I'm your host, generally, uh, for tonight. Well, we are about to delve even deeper into um, the never-ending fascination of the tantric pantheon. Now, I'm not just saying this, but uh, for me, this particular um, pantheon, this series, um, is arguably my most fascinating pumpkin that, that I think anyway that I've called so far um, but I wouldn't have got to this point if it wasn't for today's guest um, you know his perspective on all this is, is, his explanation is just fucking mind blowing um, and lucky for us uh, Jin is going to be starting his own podcast uh, you know I'm proud of him for that I really am um, can we call threshold things? Um, well, anyway, Jin, now then, <laughs> you're gone again, mate. <laughs> I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try and bring it as, as hard as I have before, and um, you know, like be worth, I want to be worthy of that introduction. So, yeah, it is an honor to be speaking to you again. I mean, like I said, Jim, uh, we're up to par seven now. Um, I've never gone so deep in something before, mate. It's um, proper impressed, proper impressed, yeah. Um, But yeah, I can't wait for the threshold scene to come on, mate. Um, You know, we will be um, adding all the um, episodes you've done. On, on subconscious realms and, and any other podcast you've been on Grey on Pagans. Um, what was what's the other one again that you went on? Um, I went, uh, I did Headless Giant and I did Union yes, of yes. Yeah. Yeah. Got all of them on there, mate. Done a couple. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, mate, from like that first episode we did, like up until now, the progression, um, what I've seeing from you is this next level is um said i'm really impressed with with all the work you've done you know i don't think there's anybody out there that could achieve what you've achieved me well i really appreciate that you say that generally that's like it's so kind and honestly it it makes me feel like it's worth it. Like I've loved doing it. I've loved every episode that we've done. I love our Dumbati episode. I think that's a phenomenal episode. I think that we had such weird things happen during it that it like 
it all, <laughs> all made sense at the end, right? Like it all made sense at the end, but it just took yeah. us a little while to get there. And I yeah. think that, you know, like I have been reading like the Zohar and other texts while we've been kind of working on the series and like yeah. I've expanded my own knowledge of other things more. And I think that even though I, I will always prefer Tantra, I will always prefer Dharma. That's just my perspective. But yeah. I think that the knowledge of like seeing what, how else the tree is described, seeing the way the spheres are described in other systems, particularly that system has been very enlightening and helpful for me. So, yeah. you know, and I, and I encourage everybody, like, you know, I really believe in reading the text and doing the practice. So if people have want the opportunity or if they have the opportunity to get an empowerment or to get like a lineage transmission to do a practice that they want to do, go out and do it, go out and, you know, forge your path and like do it for yourself and read the text and do the practice. And you will have many of the same understandings. And I don't think I've explained it in the most perfect way every time. Like I, I listen back and I hear little errors I make. But you know what? At the end of the day, it's all skillful means. It's all ways to describe pretty much an honest process of how to do it. Yeah. And, and I think that that's all, like, that's all I can really do is just, like, give my perspective on how to describe what what is the goal. Yeah. I mean, uh, I wouldn't look at it as if you made errors, mate, at all. Um, I think you've been brilliant. Uh, um, the way you've executed every episode we've done, um, he said it's, it really is impressive. Um, proud of you, mate. I really am. Well, I'm really proud of, well, I'm really grateful to you, first of all. Like, it would not have ever happened if it wasn't for you. People, I don't even think people really realize that, like, I've never even really asked to go on anyone's podcast. It was more people asked me and I thought this will really help me in like, like I talked about in the very first episode, I have an obstructed mercury and I've always kind of gone again, mate. Sorry about that. So sorry. It, sorry about that. So it's not like I'm shy or anything, but I just, don't talk about things like I don't talk about magic I don't talk about it with anybody so I think that doing it has really helped me has really like opened me to different kinds of knowledge and different kinds of like I think it's okay too to be open about it like not open necessarily like where you're just telling all your secrets and everything but I think it's really healthy to be like this is what and like I'm my purpose is higher. It's not a low purpose. And I think yeah. with the way the world is, is like we can't I don't want to be stuck in low purpose. I don't want to be stuck in low sorcery. So I think that this has like been a very helpful way for me. So I really owe it to you to like have done this. It's pretty it's pretty amazing. Oh, thanks, mate. So thank you so much. And you well, know just close up, mate. Thank you. So, anyways. So I thought today we would do a little housekeeping from the last episode, just touch on. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, just touch on the, you know, I 
talked a little bit about the Ashta Bhairavas, who are the Bhairavas, Dath, who I've put in Dath. But we started talking about, I think we did Hayagriva. So I don't want people to underestimate Hayagriva because he's not as popular now, but he was very, very popular in the medieval time. But we did a lot of him last time. So we'll do Yamataka and uh, Vajrakilaya. So, Vajrakilaya. Yes. And he's really cool. And also we will do the <laughs> end of Matangi because we have to really finish Tipperath to get to the higher point, to get to Kali, which is who we're going to do today. So I cannot wait for this one. I really can't. Uh... <laughs> can't wait for me. Well, you know, this is the kid. <laughs> you know, this is the thing. Kali is always in motion. She's it's like continuous destruction and continuous crystallization. So you really have to build up kind of your stamina. And even for me, I had to build up my kind of articulation, my rhetorical stamina to be able to like get to such a high point in the tree. So I, yeah, I wouldn't have been able to do it if I didn't start. If we didn't start at, at the bottom, if we didn't start with Bhuvaneshwari. I wouldn't have been able to get all the way up there. So, you know, it's, I appreciate that you've been so patient and like, let me kind of, you know, um, meander at times, but I think that everything that I try and relate, it will help people to kind of see it from a broader perspective, because I think yeah. what teaches us is that especially like Shakta Tantra, especially like Buddhist Tantra, it's, you know, there's all this mythology about, like, the goddess and about, like, Wicca and the feminine, divine feminine. Tantra doesn't see it as, like, this thing that existed for, like, 20,000 years and Venus of Willendorf and, like, just people worshipping the goddess and, like, happy-go-lucky in nature. Tantra doesn't see it like... Tantra sees it as, like, a very... as a kind of innovation, as a kind of, like what is the whole part of her like how to understand her in a contemporary way with all the other stories with all the other deities and also like looking at her in a sectarian way because you have to realize like and like we've said the entire episode, the entire series there are different sects of tantra shakta tantra is the rarest by far the rarest and there are different sects within Shakta Tantra. There's Kali Kola, there's Sri Vidya, which we talked about with Kurukula. But there's also others. And there's like the Nuwari Tantra that we talked about um, many times. And there's the Ashtamatrikas, the eight matrikas. So you'll see even that matches the Ashtabhairavas. But sometimes, the, like we said last time, there are also a grouping of seven. So the Sapta matrika, Matrikas, excuse me. But yeah. Really, the end of the day, it's all about the 64 yoginis, which I actually recently found out that some people do count 64 stars in the Pleiades. So that's very interesting. interesting <laughs> yeah. yeah, it really yeah. is. And so, and then also, then you have all the other important stars like Sirius, like um, the Big Dipper. The Big Dipper is a very important star in terms of. Um, East Asian Buddhism, but Tantric Buddhism in particular. And we have multiple 
kinds of deities that are connected with that and thing what do i want to say the thing that is interesting about tantra in general like especially like uh, buddhist tantra and shakta tantra is that it doesn't just focus on the on the goddess as like this it's not just god it's not just like a one-to-one replacement of any deity and it's not a low spirit it's not like a it's not you know it's not just a name it's it's the whole essence of the godhead but it look it looks at her through the different times of her life and it looks at her as not being it's non-dual i think that's what i'm i'm struggling to articulate it's she 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 is beyond conventions so she doesn't really she relates to everybody as both a sinner and a, and a saint at the same time it doesn't matter you will approach her and you will have like lived your life in whatever way accumulated whatever karmas and dharmas that you have and you try and overcome them through the practices through the sadhana so she allows you to do that because she is the creative force of the universe yeah it's not like you know like there's all the stories and even in even exists in christianity there are saints that you know had all types of different backgrounds all types of different lives that they lived and then when they start doing the practices when they went out to the desert and you know did ascetic fasting for 40 days or whatever they're they're able to start to overcome some of their external sins and tantra is exactly the same in the sense that like it's to help you overcome your external sins but it's also to help you overcome your internal sins or your internal sins it's like um this is why i find it so fascinating the the pumpkin in itself jim is is just the the description of um each god and goddess is don't think you get anything like it from any other fountain. It's so, so unique. Um, you know, I think that it is because I've been thinking a lot about this lately. Why do they appear, especially in Buddhist Tantra? Like, yes, Indian Tantra, the, the iconography can be extremely ferocious. Like, unquestioned. Okay. Right? But when you get to Buddhist Tantra, you're really getting into, like, some very ferocious territory like i understand why people find it too much especially like the buddhist iconography especially like the anuttara yoga deities like we talked about the highest yoga tantras they're yeah. very ferocious i mean they have like nine heads they have fangs they're <laughs> they're blood drinking they're all like they're doing the start like there's pictures of them drinking menstrual blood i mean it's it's very ferocious so I understand why people don't really get it, but I think that the they take so if if okay so in the Garden of Pomegranates, which is the book Cordovero on Kabbalah, okay, he's talking about how I'm. This is what I'm reading right now, so everybody can sort of like understand where I'm coming from. There are four layers to each sphere in the Kabbalah. As I've said, Tantra is inner, outer, secret. That's the dialectic. That's one dialectic. There's many, but that's one. There are really at least seven layers 
to each sphere in Tantra, in the Tantric conception, okay? So the exterior layer is obviously the elemental forces, the planetary forces, the the planetary deity who's assigned to, like in uh, Jyotish, which is Vedic astrology, every planet is assigned a god, but the gods aren't, they're not like Mahadevs, they're not like super important, but they're important in like the lives of humans because they sort of are the ones who enact our karma and our dharma in many ways. Like they can be considered archons if you want to think of it like that. That's okay. Yeah, archons, yeah. But then, but then there are also other deities, obviously. And like, so there's Vishnu, obviously. So he's like the first layer. And then you have uh, Shiva, who's like the, I don't know, like the third layer. And then you have the goddess. But the goddess, because she's always non-dual. So in the earlier part of like the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th centuries, specifically in Kashmir, you have other kinds of Tantra developing. Okay? And I know a lot of people have like... I mean, the Iranian, the Mughalized rulers who came and invaded India, they did suppress Tantra, okay? So I know that some people say, no, they didn't. But I think that the scholarly consensus is that they really did suppress Tantra. And so there's a lot of resentment against them. Like, there was kind of a cultural amnesia in India. Not just India, but um, definitely in South Asia in general. But also Southeast Asia, like Thailand, Cambodia, Laos. Like, all those places that were formerly Hindu-Buddhist um, nations or empires. There's kind of been a cultural amnesia about how much sorcery or how much Tantra specifically was important to their kind of like sex and practices. And that's exactly true in India as well. But then you also have to admit at the same time that Sufism really influenced, especially in Kashmir, really was influencing a lot of practices at that time. So they it like they were all practicing together, like I've said many times, all at the same time, at the same places. They were discoursing with each other. So they would, you know, be mean to each other. But then at the end of the day, they're they're still like they're still doing some kind of dialectical process. Okay. But there are other sects, like there's the Shiva Siddhanta. So that is more popular in the South now that doesn't really exist in like the places where Shakta Tantra exists, like Bengal, Orisha, um, you know, like the more Himalayan parts. They focus on Shiva, like Shiva, not Bhairava. They focus on Shiva, but they seek to become a dis- ontologically distinct Shiva. So they believe that we all can become the God consciousness, but we all become our own God consciousness kind of existing in like a formless realm. Yeah, I that brilliant now. So that is one kind, right? But then you have the Bhairava Tantras. So the Bhairava Tantras are really like this rejection of this idea of like Shiva Shambhu, like Shiva's just like going about the world and he's like hippie-ish and you know, like Alexander the Great did say that Rudra was the Greek or the Indian Pan. So I know you asked me a question about like who I thought would be more like Pan or who I thought would be more like Serenos. I think Shiva is both, but Shiva was not called Shiva as we've talked about as well in the, when Alexander the Great 
invaded India. Okay. So he was called yeah. Rudra. So Rudra is his Vedic name. So he can become Rudra Shiva in the Siddhanta Shaivite Tantras. Okay. But this is still not the same as Bhairava Shiva. Bhairava Shiva is kind of an innovation of Kashmiri Tantra. So when I say it's a form of Shiva, it is a form of Shiva, but Bhairava is also complete in and of himself. Like he, Shiva is the actually the lower form. So I know that is challenging. The lower form. Because Bhairava is the practitioner. Bhairava is the Tantraka. Bhairava is sitting in the carnal ground at the end of the world. He's not meditating when he's Bhairava. He's just doing the ritual. He's doing the practices. He's not just... Shiva by himself is just an ascetic. So Shiva's kind of like given up on the material creation. And the way Buddhists kind of understand it is what they call him Rudra Shiva. And he's, they say that he is the emanating Godhead. So he is the God who emanates all of material creation through his consciousness. But because he's Rudra Shiva, meaning like a howling storm god Shiva, yeah, yeah. he keeps us in the lower consciousness. So all of his kind of bullshit, all of his like anger, fears, all of his things, that's also projected onto us. So, and then there's Bhairava Tantra. So Bhairava Tantra is, the, is Shiva with no more fear. He is not afraid. Because he is there, he is practicing it, he is surrounded by the host, that's how it's described, the host yeah. of demons, ghosts, and vampires, and everyone who kind of fills the cremation ground at the end of the world. So, Bhairava is the active Shiva, but it's not really Shiva. So, just keep that, I know that's complicated, but just keep that in mind as we go forth because they will be really important for the two protectors we're going to talk about. So first we'll do Yamataka. So Yamataka is really interconnected with Shiva. So let's just talk about... It's... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, it, no, no. Um, so Yamataka is, is this the destroyer of death? Um, yes. So to speak. Yes. Yeah. Yes, 100%. So he is, that is literally what Yamataka means. Yamataka, so Yama is the slayer of, or, excuse me, Yama is the Vedic god of death. So, yes, Yama. So, uh, I, as I told you before we started recording, I did listen to the Gary Wayne and Robbie episode that you did with, and so they were talking about Nergal. Well, if you understand Mongolian Buddhism, which is kind of something I've looked into relatively extensively. Yeah. They, that, uh, what's, what's your view on the, um, the Mongolian side of things, uh, Jim? So it's really complicated, but I think that a really good, simple way to explain it is just through yeah. the normal history. So really what you have is Genghis Khan really was enamored with the Buddhists. He thought that they were extremely powerful, magical practitioners. That's how he thought of it. He also had a personal shaman who's named... Um, oh, Diana. Yeah. Yes, he had a... Per so, okay, so I'll just give a little explanation of Mongolian shamanism, just because it's so important to how Buddhism developed. 
So in Mongolia, pre this is pre-Buddhist, okay? So yeah. they had, and this is still true. So everything I'm going to say still exists in contemporary Mongolia. It just maybe is more Buddhist or more hidden, but it's still, it's all still there, okay? So yeah. you basically have three factions. So you have the white hat shamans, the black hat shamans, and the yellow hat shamans. Now, perhaps they didn't have the yellow hat shamans in the pre-Buddhist time, but that's debatable because I personally think that they probably did. So the yellow hats tend to be the most syncretic. So they tend to wow. have adopted the all the Buddhist deities and all, uh, many of the Buddhist practices like puja and all this stuff. Okay. So they, and they do meditation and it's just, it's very Buddhist in its form, but they also pray to the, so the black hat shamans only pray to the ghosts uh, and the demons of the underworld. So any... That so, might sound this, mate. So the black hats, um, basically anything. Um, in relation to undead. Yes. So they specifically propitiate who is the version of Yama. So Yama in the Mongolian kind of shamanistic pantheon is called er, um, uh, Erlik. So Erlik is a Turkish name. So they, who is, it's entomologically the same as Nergal. So that's why I mentioned that episode you did before, yes. because that he, that God is extensively discussed in that episode. So everybody should go back and listen to that. So basically... Yeah. Erlik is Nergal. Erlik is also a Babylonian god. We know this from inscriptions on the cities and all the uh, cuneiform tablets. So we know that yeah. Nergal, and sometimes Nergal is the god of war, and sometimes Erlik is the god of plagues, but we also know that they get syncretized together sometimes. So... Why is this important? So basically just think of it like Yama is kind of the repository figure. So Yama has a buffalo head. That's really important. Yama it always wears like a huge auroch, like of a European or like a Mongolian kind of yak head with two horns. Okay. It's like a full cow's face kind of thing. Yeah. So both Ehrlich and Nergal are both depicted with cow's head that's very common in all the old iconography okay okay so we're gonna just it's where i know i'm asking people to make a leap of like erlek and yama but just trust me i mean you can look up the people can look up the entomology but i'm i'm just the we're just gonna say that they're the same so basically they access any spirit that is in yama's purview or erlek's purview Okay. Right. White hat shamans only access the lower heavens. So in a Buddhist way of thinking, they would access like the Gandharvas, which are like, they're kind of like angels and they have like uh, birds wings and they play music and they're like muses and they help people write and, you know, live their life kind of thing. Like they're very yeah. like, they're kind of like, you know, they're like muses and angels, but not higher angels, just like lower angels. Yeah, yeah. And so then there's the Garudas. Obviously, we've talked about them, the eagle people. 
although they're not just eagles, obviously, because, you know, as, as when we talked about with Jumavati, she can take a form as a crow-headed Garuda. That's a very common form in Nepalese Buddhism. So, and there's other forms. There's not just, doesn't just have to be eagle people. Although, if you look, if we're talking about Mongolian Buddhism, you will see the golden eagle and the, like, kind of like the references to Aquila and the, you know, like everybody knows about the eagle hunting that they do in like Kazakhstan, Turkestan, um, Kyrgyzstan, all those places. So they really value the eagle the most, but the black hat shamans really value the underworld gods the most. So some of those are also considered to be serpent people or dragon people. Yeah. yeah. Then you also have the, so back to the, uh, Genghis Khan. So he had his own personal shaman who's named Diane Deer. Okay. So yeah. he's like Diane Deer. So he basically was a good shaman. So he only did like what we call light magic. So he did that. And eventually, when he passed away, the third Dalai Lama. So we're talking, we're going a little bit back to Tibet, but the third Dalai Lama actually traveled into the interior of. Mongolia at Genghis Khan's request. Okay, that's the truth. <laughs> well, how long did he take? Well, I, I couldn't imagine how long it took him to tell our journey back then. Well, as well, this is, you know, this is the thing. As I and I try and relate this every episode or every series that we do is that Central Asia is, in my opinion, just my opinion, is the world tree. So the center of the world is really there is Kyrgyzstan or Kazakhstan or that's really what I well you know and like because you know I have a little bit of a Chinese language background yeah. China always considered itself to be the middle kingdom like Zhongguo which means middle country or middle kingdom so why would China consider itself to be the middle of the world that's very interesting because Chinese people were also very seafaring. So they yeah. kind of were very good cartographers. And, you know, also another point that's very interesting about this is when I was an undergrad, like a million years ago in university, I had a professor who studied what's called the Song and Tang Dynasty travel logs. So they would be like these guys, these kind of scholar saints who would go all over Central Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia. And they would write down like all the things that they saw, all the kind of like, it was kind of like pre-anthropology. Okay. Yeah. So there was all these people, all these guys going into Mongolia, Manchuria, Siberia. Okay. So they were yeah. encountering all of these Mongolian and uh, Siberian and Jurchen and Kirtan shamans. Okay. So when they were encountering them, they weren't like, this is super foreign. They actually said that this is like uh, what they called indigenous Taoism. So they said that those other people were actually doing the same things that they were doing in China. That's, so I, I think that's, that's really interesting. interesting mate, isn't it? it is. Yeah. Yeah. So crazy. Man. And, you know, I, I've kind of been looking at some of the Manchurian shaman gods 
And they very are very similar to a lot of Buddhist ideas. And I know, obviously, I've already said that Buddhism was very important in that region. Yeah. But there's an element where it kind of completes other aspects of this of like, it's like the missing link. It's like the missing link between shamanism and Buddhism in some ways, like the northern Chinese Taoism. So it's very interesting. That's a whole other show, but really interesting stuff. But so anyways, the Genghis Khan's personal shaman became a protector deity. So when the third Dalai Lama, who's really the first Dalai Lama, I know I'm saying it's the third, and he is the third, but he's really the first that held that exact title. So they yes. po posthumously assigned Dalai Lama to two other people prior to, but they weren't actually Dalai Lamas when they were alive. So right. it's a Mongolian title. Yeah. And it because Mongolian Buddhism belongs to a single school is belongs to a excuse me, they predominantly belong to the Gelug school. So yeah. Yamataka is the one of the most important Gelug deities, like in their system, which is different. And I've said that there's sectarian differences. But yeah. so that practice is considered to be one of the highest yoga practices. And that is true across the board. Like every school has a Yamataka practice, but the Gelugs place them very high emphasis on that practice in particular. Is, is, is this something that um, you would say from your own experiences, Jim? It's, well, it's not for beginners, obviously, but um, how long in just roughly in years would you say if you were to start from the very bottom to get to um, Yamataka, how long we so, talk? Okay, so I'll just do full disclosure. I do not practice Yamataka. I've, I've not, I don't have any lineage transmission into Yamataka. Right, so everything right. that I will say is from the exterior only. It's not like some secret practitioner knowledge. Yeah. Not Okay, so everything that I know is from texts or from other talking to other people or listening to. I have gone to several Yamataka teachings and listened to them. But oh. I, because you can do that if you belong to a Dharma center, you can go and listen to visiting lamas or visiting Rinpoches and they will talk about yeah. their practices or, you know, different things and different yeah. ideas. It's very conceptual. You have to remember that Buddhism, they don't, especially in the Western Dharma centers, they don't emphasize the magical aspect. I do. Because I think that that's really interesting, and I think that that's the most helpful for people in the current yuga or the current kalpa, the current age that we live in, which is the degraded age. I think telling them that these things are like actually beneficial exterior, interior, and secretly, actually, I think that's the way to help people the most. But I'm not correcting anyone's teaching method or anything like that, or saying that I'm better. I'm just saying that, in my opinion, that has what has helped me. So yeah, I. It's your perspective, mate, isn't it? That's all. 100%. 100%. So, anyways, Yamataka is really important. So, okay, so I kind of got meandered about, like, Dan Deere, Yama, Yamataka. Okay, so this is the reality. Is there is this uh, very famous... Um, so he... So his... So, okay, there's this guy named Ra Lotsawa. So we'll start at the very beginning. So right. he was born in, like, 1052-ish. Okay. So he's Tibetan, he goes to Nepal, and he gains, um, he practiced, already pre-practiced, Vajrakila, 
So we're going to talk about him next. And then he also practiced Vajra Varahi. And you've heard, everybody who's listened to the series has heard me talk about Vajra Varahi. She's the boar-headed goddess. And as I mentioned, she is the most, most um, common, like the most practiced uh, Dakini of all the Dakini. Okay. So she, so he, had, he held that and both of his parents were famous practitioners as well. So, so he yeah. goes to Nepal, he studies with a bunch of other teachers. He gains a bunch of transmissions, a bunch of lineage practices. Okay. Then he learns this practice called Yamataka practice, but it was not called Yamataka at this time. It was called Vajra Bhairava. So, so that is the adamantine Bhairava, the adamantine ferocious one. Or adamantine as in, are we talking about the same adamantine as in Wolverine's um, Urquhart skeletal structure? It's interesting that I'll get that from uh, from that, isn't it? That really is. So, so I actually listened to a podcast uh, uh, with Secret Son, and he. I'm just crediting him because I didn't know any of this. So, when he was talking about, he was talking about the esoteric origins of comic books. Yeah, he was saying how much the early comic book writers, especially like Superman, especially like in the DC world, they, they were all practicing theosophists. All of them. That's Every single crazy, one. That, man, that is crazy. So, <laughs> so they, you know, just like Madame Blavatsky, she was very fascinated, not just fascinated, she was, I would say, obsessed with Buddhism. And yeah. so I think that they were too. And as I've mentioned the whole series, you know, there is... There is kind of a, I mean, there's a Kabbalistic theme in Buddhism, especially Tantric Buddhism in particular. Like it is a, it is a form of, if you want to say it's a form of Kabbalah, I personally like, I like to think of it as like, it's its own tree that you can use Kabbalah to describe, but it's its own thing. But you could say that they're parallel. You could say that they're one-to-one. I think other yeah, people see that as well. Yeah, from, from what from what I can see, mate, the, um, there's nothing else like uh, like this. S- similarly, yeah, don't get me wrong, but um, just the, the the entire scope of everything is totally different. Hundred percent. I mean, it is because I think. Well, if we're just giving opinions, and this is again just my opinion, I think that this is the the one. This is the perennial system in my opinion. So I think that this is the system. I think people tend to look like I know a lot of like um, what they call Mithraic pagans or other things. And I, you know, I'm very cool with everybody. I'm cool with Christians. I'm cool with like everybody. I consider anyone who practices like their form of Dharma doesn't have to be Buddhist to be like, it's part of the Dharma family, part of the Sangha. Okay. But Sometimes people will go and say, okay, the Vedas are the utmost truths of the universe and we must compare our Indo-European pantheon to the Vedas. And we must find all of these parallels and one-to-ones. And I did study the Vedas in university. And I'm the first to say that it's not my particular strength, but I'm not unfamiliar with them. And in my opinion, it is not the Vedas that are are the perennial story. 
it is the tantras and also the puranas and the sutras if you want to say like the mahayana sutras not the thai kind of pali sutras but i think the perennial story is hidden in tantra i think that is the whole kind of if you want to make like an argument for like a kind of like a tartarian religion i think that that i think you could very much argue that buddhism is a tantric buddhism that's my opinion just my opinion mm. and this is like uh, Oh, I think that the Tantras are the most inaccessible. So I think that people don't really see how much they've remixed the stories into a way that is useful for, because you have to think like, even though we said, and I said this to you when you asked, is that Buddhism does have like that kind of elite priest caste kind of idea okay so that definitely exists but there are other kinds of buddhist practitioners and there always were and as we've always as i've always said the householders are the most important because we start at the beginning we start in the household we start with a family and we start as the child so we have all of those things so but there were people who were called nagapas so what are those people so those are people who are uh, they belong to the Nyingma sect, so the old, what's called the old school sect. So they were considered to be the most powerful of all the mantras. Okay. Yeah. So during the third, so this is why we're going to circle back around to the third Dalai Lama. So when the third Dalai Lama went to Mongolia, he subjugated dozens and dozens of black hat shamans. Okay. Because the black hat shamans were practicing black magic and black rites. And that is the truth. That is not, I'm not trying yeah. to, you know, like if people think that shamanism is like some pure, primordial, pristine, untouched force, but that's just not the case. It's just not the case. And I can name many examples. So he went there, he saw what they were doing, he was kind of horrified. And also the Mongolians also wanted the Buddhists to, like the Tibetan Buddhists specifically, to align with them so they could go subjugate China, so they could go subjugate Europe. They wanted the like kind of like pre-sorcerers to help them because the pre-sorcerers in Tibet in a couple hundred years before had repelled the Mongols. Okay, so that's very important. So yeah. those Nagapas, the people who could practice the really wrathful mantras, they had repelled the Mongols several times with war magic. Okay. War magic. Yes. So you remember to our very first and our second episode, we talked a lot about like the, the dragon Rahula and how Rahula is um, a protector deity in Nyingma, but he's not necessarily uh, a protector deity of the other schools. His practice is called the, blazing poison razor of redeflection sometimes called magical redeflection so he is the because he is kind of a war god he's not a war god but he is he has that power of war magic okay that's one of his yeah. offices so then the nyingma school who venerates him the most they became very skilled in his kind of redeflection his um his powers, right? And yeah. like there's uh, another famous saint called Milarepa. So Milarepa, everybody will know him because he's green and he's green because he was supposedly living in a cave and he only drank nettle juice. Yeah. 
for like um I don't know. <laughs> so he turned he turned green was a master. You <laughs> so he was a master of uh rahula okay and he crushed a village with meteorites he summoned meteorites and it crushed a village okay and then a different time he summoned giant scorpions and then they came and like shot fire and killed another village so he was kind of like a, a sorcerer basically yeah. so he then okay but he's not that important in this story but i'm just giving the example of he you know they all kind of contained certain uh, powers but those weren't yeah. necessarily the high powers those were kind of like more shamanistic powers more like lower magic but eventually rahula was so important because as I said, he was subjugated by Padmasambhava. So he was brought into the Buddha Dharma. And from being brought into the Dharma, he can practice Buddhism himself. So he, so we also have this other idea of subjugating uh, local deities, like um, war gods. So the Mongols had a famous war god called Begetse Chen, who's called the Golden Begetze. Armor. Yeah, so he's the Golden Armor. That's what he oh, wears. Man. He wears... He wears a, a chainmail vest that is golden. So in Tantra, Wait, we uh, call that. Sorry, go ahead. Isn't there um, something about that that just rings a bell with the the, the golden armor? Um, I mean, there's the Jason and the Agra, uh, the Argonauts, and there's like the Golden Fleece, and then there's like a story about I think Hephaestus. Um, transmutes it with his like divine fire. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not that good at the Greek one, but I think there is something, I think you're totally yeah. right. There's something there. Yeah, it's, it's definitely Chinese or, or Asian. Um, not Jason the Argonauts. It's, it's something I just can't, it will come um, to my uh, already melted brain. But that's um, fine. Just jump in when you're, when you think of it. <laughs> yeah, I will do, mate. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. So, he was called, sometimes he's also called Red Mahakala, so Red Time Lord, because he's also red. So he has, so he's a local deity. So he was a Mongolian deity. So the Mongols basically broke up into the multiple clans. So they had a red clan, what's called Red Banner Clan, Black Banner Clan, yeah. White Banner Clan, Green Banner Clan, and so, and so forth. Okay, so they had five clans that were the major clans. Yeah. Just like the colors of the five Buddhas, okay? So they had this red Mahakala practice was a very particular practice for Genghis Khan. The third Dalai Lama subjugated uh, Begetse in a battle. I guess they were battling a rival clan. He summoned uh, di a different, Hayagriva, I believe it was the, you know, we talked about him, the horse, horse crowned king, subjugated yeah. Begetse. So Begetse becomes a special mandala protector of Hayagriva. Okay. So why is this important? Because I'm just trying to say that there's a practice of subjugating important deities and then they get put placed or they get subjugated by a, a higher deity and then they get their own kind of, of um, divine office, we could say, as like a as a special practice within the greater mandala. So I think to go back to the day and deer and Genghis Khan's personal shaman. So he became a protector of the Galagpa school later on. So the fifth Dalai Lama 
found the spirit of Diane Deer and was like, we're going to adopt him as a special protector for Mongolian Gelug school. Okay. So the third Dalai Lama, so just, I know I just said the fifth, but just go back to the third for one minute. And he subjugated this really interesting shaman named the smoky faced old man. So, (laughs) so he had, a three-day battle outside of Ulaanbaatar, and the hill still exists. Like, there's a hill, and the top of the hill used to be more of a mountain shape, but the crown or the peak is cut off, so you can see it's, like, kind of severed. And it is said that that mountain was severed during this battle. So so the black-faced old man became the protector of the black hat shamans. Okay. Do you know, mate, so, right, just before, um, sorry to interrupt, Jim. No. Um, but I am um, beyond intrigued with these black cat shamans. So, you know, when, when we finished with the township council, when we had the resort, well, could we cover that, please, mate? Yeah, I think that's going to be the next thing. I think. Yeah, it's have just. To do. Um, <laughs> Oh, it's all the things that uh, that we like. I mean, the uh, the um, venturing into the the darkness. So, I mean, I think it's really great that you brought it up, though, because I think that we have to. So, Yamataka. So, we have Ray Lotawa in Nepal. We've got the third Dalai Lama, and we've got the fifth Dalai Lama in also in yeah. Mongolia. So, what do all these people have in common? Well, they all practice Yamataka. So. Yamataka was Vajra Bhairava. So just like the Ashta Bhairava. So that's from Shaivite Tantra, Indian Tantra. Okay. The Bhairava Tantra. So that's an older kind of Tantra system of Tantra. So this is kind of a Buddhist form. So Vajra, any Buddhist deity, you will always see Vajra in front of their name. Okay. So Adamantine. That's what it basically is. is Even for like uh, Vajra Kilia. So Vajrakilia, really important, and he has a Hindu identity as well. So in Indian Tantra, his name is Skanda. It can be Kilaya. It can be Kumara. So all of those names are also the names of the knives or the magic wands. So I'll just explain quickly. Akila is the peg. Okay, so it's the three-pointed, it has three edges. So there's three edges. So it basically like the triangles, like you remember we talked about the triangles of the Sri Chakra, how there's the four upward-facing and the five downward-facing triangles, and they each represent like Shiva and Shakti, and like wisdom and method, all that. So you could think of it as like a key that you can put in one of the triangles to turn the lock. So that's what he is. So Skanda in India, in like in Hinduism, in like normie Hinduism, he is the god of logic. He is the god of strategy, of war. And he holds a spear, okay? It's a very specific sphere. Spear, excuse me. And it's really interesting because his name, I'm not going to get into this like extensively, but it's very interesting. I find it very interesting. Is that his name appears 44 times in the Greek New Testament. Yes, as the word scandalon. So, and we know that that is borrowed into the Greek from the Sanskrit. So, that's very interesting. So, he is the son of Shiva. Okay. 
So last time we talked about a little bit how Ganesh and I think we talked a little bit about Skanda, how they are the twins. They're kind of like the Romulus and the Remus of Tantra in a way you could say that. So Skanda, he is the God of locks and keys and logic and war, but he's not really a martial deity in the typical way. Okay. He's more a martial deity in the strategy and he's not very much popular in North India at all. He's very popular in the South of India and he's considered to be like a Tamil God in particular, but in the olden times, he was all over. He was very, very popular. Okay. It's interesting how, like, like you said, back um, in, in olden times, um, it, it would be everywhere. Uh, like common and then suddenly it's just gone to like one part of the country see that's because of the divide i mean i think that a lot of it had to do with the mongol or the not the mongolians the mughal the iranian kind of like the the haters from the north they because they came and took over india in about the seventh century and there was other times where they had incurred on made incursions on northern India because remember India was a Buddhist country for quite a long time like almost a thousand years and like yes Hinduism existed in a specific kind of way but it wasn't like I mean it was really a Buddhist country okay so then there was other like village practices and tribal practices like the word Hindu wasn't even in existence so you know there's a whole hidden history to India and South Asia and Southeast Asia in general. So when they came, the, his practice got pushed more to the South is basically a right. good way to think. It's not the only way to think of it, but it's one way. So I'll tell you what, one, one thing, Jim, um, sorry, mate. Um, no, no, no. The, the, the architecture um, in, in India around that is main. It's just uh, mind-blowing, isn't it? It's how they achieved that back then. Um, I just do not know. No, and the thing is, is that they're all... So I know everybody's, like, very taken with, like, Gobekli Tepe and the other yeah. like, cities and all of that. And that and all that stuff is very cool. I agree. It's all very cool, like, amazing, cool. Like, that's great. But I think that people are ignoring the really interesting stuff that still exists, like that we still kind of can understand that there are still texts about it. Because like you're saying, there is amazing temple architecture in India, like incredible, like um, places like the Konark Sun Temple is incredible, that it has like a chariot for the Garuda. And when the sun rises, it kind of shines through. So you can imagine like the whole idea is like you can see Vishnu kind of like riding it across the world, like very cool. Oh, mate, but about that, um, it looks like um, just a big boulder, and something happened. I don't know if it was an earthquake or something, and um, suddenly this door appeared, and it's like been totally from the inside, it's been carved out. Um, and that, are you familiar and- with that? I'll have to find I'm not quite sure what it's called, but um, mate. <laughs> no, I mean the whole region. I mean the whole region. That's why I say, I personally, and this is just my opinion again. It's just 
I believe Central Asia, South Asia, because that's all like you have to think. I'm just really talking about the Himalayas. I might call it Central Asia. I might call it South Asia sometimes, but I'm really talking about the Himalayas and the Himalayas extend quite a far ways. Like they almost extend all the way into Siberia. And if we listen to the story of Tara, the green Tara, who I always talk about and such an important deity. And we can make, I think we can make a very cogent argument that she is also a Starte. I think that that makes a lot of sense. I don't think that they're necessarily one-to-one. Obviously, Buddhism, as I've always said, it delineates the goddesses in different stages of their consciousness. So Green Tara is not the is not the Astarte of like, you know, of the wrathful, the horror, you know, she's not the whore. She's not the, she's not like the lower deity. She's at her highest point of consciousness she decided to not become a full buddha she is a full buddha but she isn't a buddha in the cosmic sense she still can intercede on our world so she has to live in a different it's not really a lower realm but it's like a lower than the highest realm so she has to stay there until she kind of can liberate all of us that's kind of her story is how she's conceived of so she does that of her own power, like we've said for all the goddesses. They all become enlightened, if you're thinking of it in a Buddhist sense, they're becoming enlightened of their own power. But after hearing the after hearing the sermons of Buddhism or yeah. uh, Padmasambhava or whomever, or they become subjugated. So that's another way to think of it, like a sorceress battle. But, you know, so I think that there's a, a link there where, you know, you have Tara remaining as a practice for like, 3,000 years in the Himalayas. We know that that's true. We know that a lot of the, we know the name of Tara means star. We know the name of Astarte means star. It's the eight-pointed star. It's the Pleiades. They're all associated together. I think that there's a lineage there. I think that there's something that's very unexplored. And we know that the Tara Peeth temple that we talked about in the third episode is the place where the third eye fell. So I think that there's like a common theme of of the same stories from Sumer and Babylon and all those places that people are think are in West Asia or like Lebanon and Israel. But I, I think that that's wrong. I think that we're that's we're too focused on that part. And I think we miss the part that still exists, because I think that can really reveal what is the full story. That's my opinion. Though. Yeah, it's just. So, but anyways, getting back to it, I just, what I want to say about uh, Yama, and I'll just be really concise with that, is that Yama is a, is a, so basically Rei Lotsawa learns this Vajra Bhairava practice, this adamantine ferocious one practice. He is not necessarily a Buddha in his mind, but he's a very good sorcerer. So he basically goes back to Tibet. He takes this very heterodox practice that obviously came has more Indian or Hindu origins. And again, I'm using the word Hindu nebulously. I don't really mean it, but I just mean it wasn't necessarily a Buddhist practice, okay? So it was something that was kind of formulating at the time, probably from the earlier Bhairavatantras, 5th to 8th century. Anyways, so he brings it into Tibet. He gets in a fight with 21 different Dharma teachers. And there's uh, his... <laughs> so he, he basically, he kills all of them. Not all of them. He kills many of them, but there's one teacher that stands up to him. 
who was from the Shakya school. So remember, we talked about the Scythian connection, how the Shakya school, yes. Shakya means yes. white earth. So the Shakya prince, who's the, their family name is Khon, K-H-O-N. He, he, there's a great uh, Shakya master, who's the master of Vajra Kilaya. So Vajra Bhairava has the buffalo face of Yama, okay? And I'll explain why. But first, so he goes up against this other uh, practitioner of Vajra Kilaya. And what happens is the, the older man, who's the Sakya guy, he kills two of Ray Lotsawa's um, assistants because it's always like you have to think it's like dueling. If you've ever seen like a Chinese movie or like um, Mr. Vampire, that even though that's like not necessarily Buddhist, that gives you a very good example of like what a Buddhist sorcery battle would look like. Yeah. There's basically you set up two altars and you're facing each other and you're summoning like the wind and the fire and the deities and ghosts and this and that. And that you're, yeah, you're trying to like basically kill the other one. So yeah. that's basically what happens. And so then Ray Lotsawa kind of goes back and he's angry because, you know, everybody thinks that this practice is not really Buddhist practice. And it, it, nece it isn't necessarily, but then once you start to understand what the practice is, you start to see that actually it is. It actually makes a lot of sense in the Buddhist cosmology. So going to his, back to his name, the slayer of death, Yamataka, the idea is, is that Bhairava is, like I said, he's only at death. So in the tantric conception, you want to get to Kether or above Kether, like whatever the Buddhist ideas are of the yeah. higher realms. You want to go higher. You don't want to be stuck in death. Like I said, the Lurianic Kabbalah, I don't agree with that. Like how you just, like death is not equivalent to Kether, in my opinion. Okay. So, but he's still necessary to get there, there. So that's why the Ashtabharavas yeah. are so important. And I also like Pluto. I don't know if I said this last time, but Pluto is my preferred uh, planetary assignation for death. And whether you believe in space or not, and like, as I've always said, it's like, I'm very flexible with those things. I can take it as a metaphor or I can take it as literal. It's okay for me either way. Yeah, I, You know, uh, I, I'm impressed with your use of Pluto. Though, mate. It's, uh, it's one of them. It's like, um, I really like to read the name. Nobody speaks of Pluto anymore, do they? You know, I think that, you know, I'm very traditional in some ways, and I like to use the yeah. Vedic astrology, but I think that sometimes it's useful for people, especially if they're into the more European pantheons, to hear the planets used in the Kabbalah in like a more contemporary way. And I actually agree with the assignations in some ways, because like I like, like I said, for Chokma, I like Neptune for that sphere. That makes sense to me that because... Chokma, I know I've said this a million times. Dumavati quells the quells the smoky tail of the dragon. So I won't get into that whole story about that again. But and I know I've said Ganesh also clears the smoky tail of the dragon. Both are very true. They just clear the the tail at different parts of of when the dragon rises up. So like the dragon also yeah. struck that Malkuth. So when he rises up, Ganesh clears him from the paths. But Dumavati uses her spear to nail his tail down. So it kind of disperses because she, remember, is the smoke eater. So she can like basically take all his power into her. So at Pluto, so basically the dragon also is 
cleansed, or you could say if you have the dragon in your birth chart. Uh, Vajra Bhairava is the subjugate, one of the subjugating deities, just like Hayagriva, of Rahula. Okay, so why is that really important? Because we know from when we look at the Kabbalah tree that all the like when you're above, when you're in the higher spheres above Tiberth, they all ha have the interconnection in the paths, and they all kind of cross death, right? So if they're crossing death, and Shiva's at death, or Vajra Bhairava's at death, or Yamataka's at death, or Hayagriva, because there are eight heroes. So if they're all there, they all can they all can pin down Rahu. So they all can help you kind of overcome his male malevolent presence. But at the same time, he Rahu is a worshiper of the goddess. So he's a big, he's a, you'd say he's a Shakta Tantra almost. So right. he, he responds to the power of the male deities, but he respects the goddess. Okay. So he yeah, worships like the that. goddess. So basically, the Yamataka practice is the idea of Shiva killing the god of death, Yama. So that's basically what it is. It's Shiva, just like Shiva cuts the head off Brahma in the, in the Puranic telling, Shiva cuts the head off Brahma, and then uh, Brahma grows up. Uh, well, it's not always Brahma. It can be Kashyapa or another sage, but they're always Brahma. So he cuts the head off. So just like that story, he does it in the Chathonic world. He does it in the hell world. So he cuts Yama's head off because Yama yeah. is the god of death, right? So he tries to kill Shiva, basically, or tries to, like, call his life into the underworld. But Shiva yeah. does not accept that. Sorry, go ahead, generally. No, you're saying, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, okay, so, okay. So he severs the head, and then he places the bull's head onto his own head. So in a Buddhist way of thinking, he is graduating from being like Bhairava or like the lower forms of Bhairava, who's like Shiva, uh, Rudra Bhairava or Shiva Bhairava or Shiva, just Shiva by, by himself. He is overcoming all of his own bullshit. He is overcoming <laughs> death. So he has liberated himself from physical death. Okay, so Vajra Bhairava is not a protector deity. Like I said with Hayagriva, he, Hayagriva can be in, exist in all the, the five um, categories of Tantra. So he can exist as a protector, but he can also exist as an Ishta Devada. Yamataka is exclusively an Ishta Devada, so he's exclusively a meditational deity. However, there are things called termas. So termas are kind of like a... There's different kinds. There's called clear light transmission, which is where you have a dream or maybe sometimes it's described as like um, you'll have uh, Lama will touch your forehead and you will gain the practice like in your mind. Okay. So it's like telepathic. Yeah. So that's clear light transmission, but it can also happen in a dream. So sometimes Padma Sambhava, usually it's Padma Sambhava, sometimes it's Green Tara, will yeah. appear in the dream and they will give you a practice. Okay. Yeah. But then, oh, sorry, I forgot where I was going with that. So they appear in the dream to give you the practice. But then there's also the finding the treasures. Like, I think I talked about this last time with finding it in the rocks and like in the desert in these boxes and different. There are different yeah. like signs and symbols. Sorry. 
So there are different signs and symbols like and they hide little practice texts all over the desert, all over like the valleys and the mountains. So it's basically, and that can also be a terma. So people can find those things and they were hidden by many great saints and sages. That's how it's thought of. It's so crazy, isn't it? Um, just the yeah, real idea, like, like, like uh, my hiding. Well, it's, it's also interesting because the Nagas, so the dragon people, are considered to be quite, not all of them, but many of them are considered to be Buddhist. And they love practice texts and they love of magical texts. So they often are the protectors of magical texts and they often take them into the inner world, into their subtle world, which is like considered in the inner core of the earth. You so see, they will hide. Like that. Mentioning the, um, the inner. It's, it's very interesting. Well, they are considered the protectors of the inner. It's called the subtle world. So it's the lowest world but it's not hell it's the it's the space between like physical and the spiritual like the lower spiritual worlds yeah so they kind of that's their world and they but they also exist on the human plane like when buddhism breaks it down there are six realms like i said i think last time and but the nagas kind of have a realm that's a subtle realm so it can kind of exist in all the other six realms it's not really given its own realm they're not like a seventh yeah. realm. They kind of share more with us. So it's also the like basically can adopt from from different um, realms, uh, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. They're the they're the ones who have the most ability to traverse the worlds in the sense yeah. of like as a lower spirit. Like they can't. They're not like a, a god. Like they can't like traverse like the because there's like dozens of worlds in Buddhism. Like Buddhism conceives yeah. of the of it like a big tree right but yeah. the nagas can definitely access all six worlds within like the material plane mm. so that's quite interesting too but anyway so then with yamataka so he shiva cuts off his head puts it on his so that's what yahama yamataka is depicted so he has uh, 12 arms six on each hand but he can have more <laughs> he can have more he can have 24 and he can have 36 <laughs> 36 sometimes so he will so when he has 36 he will hold different like all these different implements different gods he will hold them in like his hands he will hold sometimes the zodiac he will hold the all the zodiac um stars in one side of his hands and then he'll hold like divine weapons in the other and then sorry go ahead when he's got 36 arms shit's going down Basically, he's like the he's the death bringer and he conquers death. But then, well, this is the whole thing is that Yama. So the Ehrlich character that we talked about in the very beginning, he is the special protector of the Yamataka yeah. mandala. So the god of death becomes a very special activity protector so we remember we talked about with Kurakula how there's a distinction between action and activity. So if Yamataka is an Ishtadavada, meaning a meditational deity, yes, he can perform, you can do magic with that or whatever, however you want to think of it. You can do, you can gain Sitas and you can do more worldly things with it, but really it's not for that. It's really, that is what Yama is for. So 
especially when you're doing Yamataka, it's extremely ferocious, right? Because you're talking about like a bullheaded deity, like appears in like total pitch black darkness. He's like roaring with fire and surrounded by like demons and ghosts and all that stuff. So it's really to challenge the Opasaka of their fear against their fear. So they should not have any fear. So they all the yeah. This is all stuff for like in it. Good, good. I'm glad. So they use Yama in a way to clear. So when other, you know, when spirits like appear or like if other practitioners like go against you, you can like have a protector practice that's built into the mandala. That doesn't mean that you have to use Yama because just like with any Ishta Devada, just because that this one protector is assigned to them doesn't mean you have to use them. Doesn't mean that has to be your personal protector practice. For a lot of people, that's not. But he's really useful. And you can see that there's a conceptual idea there of like the Yamataka is the slayer of death. But then he subjugates Yama into the Dharmic cycle. He says, Yama, you cannot just like use your death energy to, to hurt people. You have to like use it for a cosmic purpose. You have to use it for a Buddhist purpose. You have to protect people who are practicing my practice so yeah so we talked to Salat Yamataka so he's also and as I said Vajra Bhairava so we can see that there's a relationship there with Shiva and a relationship there with Bhairava so that is also so this is a slayer of death he would be the logical one to place with Kali if you were doing a more Buddhist idea although yeah. in Buddhism Kali is a Sri Devi so that's a specific class of protector but she exists, she exists, but she's just a specific class of protector. So usually she's placed with Mahakala, so the Time Lord. But Yamataka is a much greater deity than just Mahakala. But if you consider Sri Devi as a practice all of her own, which some people do, and just by the way, this is interesting, is that the Dalai Lama practices Paldan Lamo. So Paldan yeah. Lamo basically is... Kalaratri, which means the dark night. So that's very similar to Kali. And many Lamas have written prayers saying that Paldan Lamo is the same as the Calcutta version of Kali. Okay. I know a lot of Buddhists yeah. don't like to admit that, but it's true. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Uh, no, no, no. You know, I mentioned um, uh, depicts it as a uh, bullheaded god. Yeah. Would it be. Um, Similar to say um, that Apis, the Egyptian uh, fertility god, and like so, uh, the Mesopotamian, got Ashka and Adad. Um, they're all like like linked to to the bull. Um, so, I've thought about this a lot because obviously you know yeah. I've listened to other podcasts about the Egyptian pantheon. So. I personally think that they use the buffalo head for a reason and they didn't just use like a cow's head. Although yeah. you definitely could think of it like that, but never when I've ever seen it depicted, and I'm talking like there are some really old Mongolian art pieces of Yamataka, like from the 11th and 12th century. Right. So he always has a buffalo head. It's never a cow's head. So I think that we, it's better to look at like Babylon and like Sumer and like, when they're talking about like um sometimes they'll have like Moloch or Baal and they'll oh, have like um, yeah. I think it's more like that. 
I think Yama, yeah. Yama. So Yamataka obviously is not that. Yamataka is not stuck as the hell god. Yamataka has, because you could also say Shiva is the hell god, right? Like you could say part of Shiva's yeah, consciousness. So yeah, you could say part of Shiva's consciousness exists in the hell world, takes form as the god of death because Shiva lives in the cremation ground, right? So you could yeah. say that it's him killing himself. Like he slays that part of himself that causes the world to decay. Yeah. Um, me as well, um, adding to that, uh, Jane, um, Shaw Zeus, um, he has got a bull. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I do think that there is, there is obviously a, there is a very easy parallel you can make between Rudra, Rudra Shiva, not Bhairava, but Shiva. Rudra Shiva. So when Rudra is literally, so when Rudra is first kind of created as a name, so we're talking yeah. like first and second century AD. Yeah. It's a little earlier than that, but we're just going to say for popular worship. Okay. So when it's in the first and second century, he's Rudra Shiva. So he's, He's was Rudra as the Vedic god, but then he yeah. gets added to this other aspect of his personality because Rudra is just a ferocious storm god. That's really how it's always depicted. Rudra is yeah. just like this ferocious storm god who just causes like chaos and destruction wherever he goes. Rudra Shiva is like this kind of like uh, he's like a kind of like a pan, but not quite. He's kind of like a he has like his drum and he beats his drum and then the demons follow him and all these like uh dakinis follow him and like you know it's like it's just a bunch of it's like a big party and he rides his bull and they just they're all like in a party so a bit like would you say a bit like similar to the pie piper maybe yeah that's very similar to that's yeah. very similar yes so that so that's him at rudra shiva so i think that you could definitely say that uh like when um, Zeus has that form that he took in like Turkey, yeah. like those places and the Roman times even. I think that definitely you could say that that is Rudra Shiva. But I, that's what I was saying when I said I think people make the mistake by doing a one-to-one -one with the Indo-Aryan or the Indo-European yes. pantheon with the Vedas because the Vedas are the gods in their, in, the, in like, um, it's like, the thing is, is that even the Indian Tantras, okay? So obviously I'm Buddhist. I prefer the Buddhist things. But the Indian Tantras are a great innovation because they innovate the gods as having conscious, higher consciousness, higher desires. As the, well. highest, the highest form, yeah. yeah. Right. So they can, they're not as worldly. They're not as limited by them, their own bullshit. And that's why, that's how Buddhism conceives of it. Their desires keep them in a lower state of consciousness. So they can never rise higher and they're always reborn in the cycle because of their own mistakes, flaws, sins, whatever you want to think of it as. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and uh, then, sorry, Jim. No, sorry. Go ahead. I just, this is, um, I've been meaning to, um, jump in with this one. Um, Bash Rikilia. Right. Um, you know, like I'm, I'm specifically interested in, in the colours of some of the gods and goddesses. Okay. Um, we've got um, different colours of winter. He's got is it blue, so, uh, red, and white. Is it okay? So let's do the colours. So Yamataka is always blue black. So, but Yamataka originally had two other forms, which is called uh, Raja uh, Yamari, which is the red razor of death. 
and Crota Yamari, who is the Black Razor of Death. So Vajra Kilaya is the Diamond Thunder Knife. So he is also a razor in one way of thinking. Diamond Thunder okay. Knife. Well, that's another way to describe Vajra. Like you can translate Vajra as adamantine. You can translate Vajra as diamond thunder. There's many different people have like tried to come up with different things. Like my, I think I talked about this last time, but my name, like Jin, it can also mean Vajra. Like that's one way to understand it. Um, so it's any kind of compressed metal that's undergone like a pressurized process with lightning, basically. Right. That is a mint description, that way. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. I'm glad you like it. So, Vajra Kilaya, when he... So, he can also have the name. So, let's just say the names is Vajra Kumara. Can also be his name. He can also Vajra. be Vajra Kumara. That's a very common name in the older tantras. So, Skanda is Shiva's son. So, Skanda is his Hindu name. That's his Shiva's son. Okay, so just like Vajra Bhairava, you could say is the highest consciousness or the Buddha consciousness. Vajra Kalaya is the highest Skanda consciousness. So it's the highest consciousness of Shiva's son. You could think of it like that. That's not really the right way, but it's one way to think of it. So he usually is a blue practice. And as we said, blue deities usually are ruled by Akashobhya, who's the blue Buddha, blue black Buddha. Or it can be, but actually Vajra Kalaya is very cool because he's actually ruled by Vajra Sapa. So who is Vajra Sapa? So as people can go back and listen to our episode we did on Bhairavi, we just did a little bit of her. But so that's one, that's how Indian Tantra conceives of when you go up to Yasod, you meet Bhairavi. Buddhism doesn't have a female deity there. Buddhism puts Vajra Sapa on, on the the moon disk. So, so it, sorry, go ahead. No, uh, it, there's no goddess in it whatsoever. No, <laughs> there is. No, so there. I'm uh, maybe I didn't articulate well. No, they they okay. definitely exist, but in that particular sphere, it is a man. It's a male deity. It's a Vajrasattva, but he can be. He can be um, depicted with his consort. Okay, so he can be with his consort, who's blue. So he's white, and then his consort is blue, which is the opposite of Adi Buddha, who's white with the uh, who's blue with a white consort. Okay, but yeah, okay. in the uh, in Yasod, he appears as white. So he is the diamond purity practice. So he diamond. is the yes. Yeah, so he is the first. So every okay. So every normie Buddhist, like everybody who goes to a Dharma center, like to learn tantric Buddhism. Okay, everybody will be told you need to practice Nagandro. Nagandro literally just means preliminary practice so right, okay. it takes it takes three years to do nagandro usually as a lay person okay three years it's it's just because you have to do so many recitations of his mantra of the vajrasapa mantra right. and so most people obviously only do like an hour a day max so if you're only doing an hour a day it's going to take you like three about three years if you're doing it every day okay well it's sometime like in it well again Take some commitment to um, to start and finish it. Well, that's it's supposed to be like he is the purifying practice. So, you know, he helps us. What his specific function is is that he repairs all the broken vows, like oath, like any kind of oaths that we've broken, any kind of bad karmas from the past, or that we've, especially the ones that we've accumulated in this life. 
um, yeah. all of our sins, anything like that. He helps repair all of that. He helps repair the spheres, make sure they're turning in the clockwise directions. Yeah. And he just makes it so we're prepared to climb up. He kind of like is hard on us, but it's for our benefit. Okay. Yeah. Vajra Kilaya is the ferocious, wrathful form of Vajrasapha. So Vajra Kilaya. So even if you think of like Yasod, where is Yasod on the tree? So Yasod, if you're going the middle pillar, remember Buddhism is about the middle pillar. So Yasod, Tipareth, death. Okay. So if Vajra Kilaya appears in death, that totally makes sense. Because Vajrasattva is like the close, is like the more, it's the practice for the beginning. It's the practice for the people on Malkuth. But once you climb all the way to death or you're like higher near uh, in a sphere that's nearby, you're going to need Vajrakalaya because he turns the sphere specifically. So he helps us overcome demons and obstacles that not only that we've had before, but that appear before us when we're traveling or traversing through the spheres. So he's extremely important. He's extremely powerful. He's blue. He's also associated with Garudas. I know you like that. We yes. never talk about Garudas. <laughs> well, they're just really, they're very important in Buddhism. They're not, as I said before, they're not that practiced anymore. Like people don't really do that practice very frequently anymore. But there are combination practices. So there is a Hayagriva, Garuda, and Vajrakilaya. So then he combines into one deity. It's kind of like, if people oh, like know okay. like Voltron or Power Rangers, I know this is like really juvenile, but it really is like this. It, <laughs> he kind of they kind of combine, and then that can be a separate and distinct practice, and then they, they can all be part of their own mandala where they're a combined deity. So that exists. That's there's actually quite a few deities that are combined like that. So Garuda is very much associated with Vajrakilaya. So he's very good for um, subjugating dragons and like uh, sorcery and like anything like that. So, so he's very so, ferocious. Sorry, so, go ahead. Jim, sorry, mate. Uh, when, when, so we've got Vajra uh, Kiliaya. Um, when he's combined with the other two um, gods, is it just... He can, sorry, uh, he can combine. Does, does... Sorry, mate. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'll let you go. Does, does, um, obviously, I'm thinking the name change because if there's three, that became become one. Um, so he does change names sometimes, but sometimes it will just be called like a Vajra Kilaya Garuda Hayagriva practice. But there are okay. other forms, there are secret forms which I can't really explain but okay so there is one that i can say so there's guru drakpo so remember we always talk about i always bring up padma sambhava guru padma sambhava the tantric buddha yeah. of the eighth century so he takes a wrathful form called guru drakpo okay so oh. guru drakpo is like a red guy and he holds a, a vajra so like the pronged it's like exactly like what you'd see in like the zoroastrian things but in buddhism we do like nine prongs usually in the old time They'll do yeah. like, they're like double, it's called the double dorji. So it's like these pronged things and it's to build your internal Vajra, your internal power. Okay. Yeah. He will hold that and then he will hold, he doesn't hold the double dorji. He just holds a single dorji, but I'm just, I said a double because I think they're cooler, but he, he also <laughs> holds the score. He also holds a scorpion. So a scorpion is the power okay. of wrathful magic, wrathful sorcery. 
Okay. So he can, so this is Padmasambhava, but he can take a ferocious form to subjugate demons. It's very important. That's something what Padmasambhava is very, he has eight forms. It's called um, eight form Padmasambhava. And he has different forms where he takes in different times of his life where he had to overcome specific obstacles. Just like how we always, like we always say, like you have to become the hero of the path. So he was the hero of his own yeah. path, right? So he took on different forms of different deities to overcome different demons, different gods, different things that uh, appeared before him. So he has this form called Guru Drakpo. Guru Drakpo can take this form that his legs, so they'll, how it will depict it is his legs will become the kind of pyramid knife. So it will face <laughs> downward. And you'll have wings. He'll have wings, and he will have a horse head sometimes, a horse crown, just like Hayagriva. Oh, right, okay. And so the wings represent the Garuda. So when you see the higher tantric deities with wings, that's usually a combination. That usually means that the Garuda practice is implied. Because a Garuda practice is given sometimes, not always any, not very frequently anymore, but usually you would give it to children. Because why would you give it to children? Because children can learn the basics of puja or the basics of sock offering TSOK, TSOK, which is giving like the cakes and like in and doing song offering, like yeah. incense or burning cedars. They can just learn to do that through the Garuda practice. And everybody has their own kind of Garuda. It's kind of like a personal protector practice. And when you're and you have to think like the in the especially in the olden times, the Nagas were considered to be very prevalent in the world. The Nagas live in the water. So if you're like a little shepherd boy living in Tibet and you have to go take care of the sheep or whatever, and there's a lot of poisonous snakes in China, you want to have a practice that protects your sheep and protects you. So that's so basically what it's for. Yeah. So you yeah, so you can give it to kids, so the kids can learn from that. So just like Padmasambhava did. So he had a Garuda practice since he was a child. He obviously, when he grew up, he you get you do many more practices, and then you kind of combine them because they're really powerful together. So that's really the idea. So Vajra Kilaya yeah. in the is really interesting in Indian tantra. I won't get too into it, but Skanda, so his Indian name, he throws. The so he used to be a completely tantric deity, completely left-handed. Okay, in Indian tantra, yeah. totally left-handed deity. There's a story in the Garuda Purana where he throws the book of tantra. So it's not. I know it's just. I'm saying one book, but it's really. It's the conceptual idea is he's throwing all the books. He throws them into the higher ocean, to the freshwater ocean of the heavens. Okay, they are lost. They are lost for 400 years. That's how it's conceived of. And they're swallowed by a giant fish. Okay. So Skanda's wife is actually very important as well in Buddhism. Like extremely important. And extremely important in Nepal. And in Buddhism, her name is Mahagauri, which means Mahagauri. like the Mahagauri. So that can mean the great shining one or the great golden one. Or Interesting. And when she is with Vajra Kalaya, because she can be depicted totally on her own, riding a, a peacock. That's her mount, her vahana. She rides a peacock. A peacock. Yes, a peacock. She holds peacock in like, a, like the bird. Yeah, like a bird. Like a blue-green bird, yeah? 
And yeah. he also, in his Indian form, so in the Buddhist form, she can ride a peacock. But in the in the Indian form, he can ride a peacock as well. And that's his mount. Okay. In the in his Buddhist form, when they are together, her name is Dipta Chakra. Okay, which means shining wheel that spins. That's how it's considered to be constantly in motion. So when they're depicted in Yab Yum, that means like union together, and you'll see them, they are considered to be the ones who turn the wheel of time. So if you have that practice, once you get up together, you're able to turn the wheel of time. Like you are the Mahavira, the greatest hero, and you can become the Chakravartan, which means the one who basically that exactly that you turn the wheel of time. So it's a must have practice like Hayagriva, Yamataka, Vajrakilaya. Although there are eight Bhairava practices, in, even in Buddhism, as well as Indian Tantra, you must have those three. That's one way of thinking about it. It depends on the text and your lineage and who your teachers are, right? But in the general conception, this you must have the three. That's why I say like Dath is a very important sphere for Buddhism, because it's also the guru sphere, just like Shiva is the primordial guru. It, like whoever your guru is also appears there. Just like the guru can also appear as Hayagriva, the guru can also appear as Yamataka, and the guru can also appear as Vajrakalaya. Because they're all teachers in their own way. And they're all yeah. by Ravas as well. So we'll just do a little bit of Kali now that we did Vajrakalaya. Just because I know I'll do her next time. But like I think that is just like important because she also appears in this sphere. But she really appears in Bana. And she is the crystallizing force, but she's not always the crystallizing force. And she's the crystallizing force when she's in uh, depicted in it's called birthing posture. Okay. So she is in connected to Shiva in coitus and she's looking at the Opasaka and her tongue is lolling. Her tongue is sticking out. That is her in the birthing position. So you remember when we talked about Kam Kamakia, yeah. Like the goddess under the earth, the titaness who's trapped under the earth of her own making, not because some god did it, but because she chooses to be there. Yeah. So Kali in that way can become Kamakya, okay? But the difference is, is Kali is in constant motion. Kali is constant energy. Kali is the black hole, the destruction of time. Okay? So yeah. when... She, <laughs> And to show me, it's like, like the description of Kali is like, um, not only like Mother Goddess, but God, Goddess of Time, the Doomsday, Death. So um, she's, the, she's the death because she stands on the corpse of Shiva. But she's not really the Goddess of Death. She's like Yama is the God of Death. That's really how yeah. it is conceived. She just is the time where we change from form to formlessness. And also back. So she's both of those things. She's the crystallization. And then she's also the destruction from matter to energy. From energy into matter. Yeah. So she really controls both of those things. But her true intention is to kind of keep time moving. Because like I said, Shiva kind of has abandoned the material world because of his own... It's considered to be because of his own flaws, his own, like I said, like his own bullshit. He goes to yeah. sit on the cremation ground. She needs to bring him in. So Tara is his wife when he she brings him in as the child to like live out his cycle. Kali is his exact consort. Like Kali is his 
Tara is higher than Shiva. That's how it's conceived of because obviously Shiva appears as a little boy nursing on her breast in that yeah. sphere. But in, in Kali's sphere, he appears for the first time as Kala Bhairava. So Kala, like the, as I've said, that means time. And Bhairava, so the ferocious time lord. Like I said, there are eight Ashta Bhairavas. So eight Bhairavas. So that's when he appears as Kala Bhairava. Kala Bhairava is the king, so the Mahakala, of all the yeah. time lords. So he's also the ninth. So there are eight, but he's also the ninth. And he appears in that. But he, when he appears in Bina, he is still a corpse, even when he is by Rava. Okay? But when right. you see him depicted, his eyes are open. And sometimes you will even see them, so they will be on a palaquin, like a raised platform. And yeah. they will have the Vedic gods underneath, like Agni, Varuna, Vayu, Rudra, Narayana, Vishnu, sometimes Brahma. You okay, mate? Yeah. Sorry about that. Sorry no, about that. Sorry. No, I'm sorry about that. Um, no, they're, so they will be depicted with the lower Vedic gods, but I don't mean that they're lower. It's just that they're lower in depiction. So right. they will be like the elemental gods, okay? Like Varuna, Vayu, um, Agni, Rudra, um, Narayana, and, Bra and Brahma, okay? So then they will have a different Shiva called Sada Shiva. So he's Sada kind of Shiva. the corpse, Sada Shiva. So he is the sleeping Shiva. Okay. And then on top of Sada Shiva, you will have the Kala Bhairava. So you will have the time king, the Mahakala. He, but his eyes are open. He's not really a corpse, but he's also a corpse because he's in a passive position. But he's yeah. lithophalic. So he's erect. And she's standing on him. <laughs> but they're not necessarily in coitus. So they're not necessarily in coitus. Yeah. So that's really important, but she can stand on him with both the right and the left leg. And that's a totally different depiction. Like I said, in the first two episodes, like every depiction can also be a different ontological system. That's hundred percent true. So when she stands on him in a specific way, she can be more ferocious or less ferocious. She can be yeah. a householder goddess, but she's only a householder goddess in two Icon. So I'll just explain that quickly because I think it's really important. So people should not like go and think, I think there's been a lot of like, unfortunately, a lot of like the feminist witchcraft and feminist like kind of strains of, of like magic and even like a lot of the guys, like, I think they've totally mis misunderstood Kali and they've taken her as like this totally different meaning they've totally taken her yeah. outside of her meaning and i don't think that it aligns at all with the true tantric meaning not that i understand yeah, the yeah. true tantric meaning yeah i mean like mate fucking hell i could be very wrong here but you know um i think people uh or certain people will uh, look at for example Kellett and get the ne negative aspects and uh run with that <laughs> And that's why it can um, look as if it's like um, some sort of a dark entity when, like you say. You know, she is extremely ferocious. Tension, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, but she also, like in a Buddhist way, or even a Shakta Tantra, because Shakta Tantra and Buddhism are very similar. Like they're, it's the, the boundaries of that are pretty nebulous and sometimes. Yeah. So, 
the reality is, is like she is very ferocious, but she can also be a mother goddess. She can also take the form of Badra Kali, which means the good Kali. Like that's literally what it means, good Kali. So Badra Kali has multiple heads and multiple arms. So that is uh that is the form of Kali you can worship in the house. Okay. Jin, Jin. Yeah, yes. just just sorry, I know you're explaining this, but just just a quick one, it's only quick. No, like um like the, the artist um the 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 depiction of Kali, what is the the meaning for like she can wear like um I'll say like a necklace with all the heads on. Okay, so those, so every Buddhist goddess, specifically yeah. the Dakinis, so I'm just going to I'm talking more Buddhism, Dikinis. but I can explain the Dakinis. So all the goddesses that are the higher goddesses are all yeah. Dakinis, okay? So they're all, remember we talked about last time, I know it's been a couple of weeks, but the Dakinis are the people, are the um, spirits or entities who live in the great carnal ground, the Mahashmashana, right? Like the lotus, we said, right, right, the yeah. lotus is the great carnal ground. They are the ones who are doing the rituals, who are doing the practices. They are the ones who are attempting to get to, to become Buddhas or to gain higher access to other formlessness or other realms or whatever. Okay. Yeah. So the Dakinis are the, are the female practitioners, but they don't have to be human, but they can be human sometimes. But Kali, so she, so like you asked me last time, like, did Durga create the Mahavijas? Yes. In one telling of the story from the Devi Mahatma Prana, she, Durga is the creatrix of the Mahavijas. But that's only one telling. There's multiple tellings. The Kalika Purana says that Kali is the creatrix of the Mahavijas. Okay. So, it, yeah, it depends on your sect, right? Like what's called the Sampradaya. Like what is the stories? What are the texts that? Are more important and Buddhism is exactly the same. So, and like so that Shakta, Hindu, and Tantric, say for example, that what you say. Yeah, and a lot of Indian, and like I said, Shakta is rare. So even though the there are saying there are different schools, and there are. So like just like we said with Kurukula, like there's a school that focuses on uh, Lalita Tripura Sundari, so Kurukula. Yeah. But but there's also a school that focuses on Kali, and in Buddhism we prefer Tara. So it just depends on your perspective, but they're all, it's not really competing. It's just looking at them at different times in the story of creation and destruction. So she wears the 50 heads of demons. For, they're usually for Kali. They're usually, <laughs> they're usually fresh heads. So different goddesses will wear different kinds of heads. So sometimes like Kurukula, in her Buddhist depiction, she will wear 25 fresh heads and 25 dried heads. Mate, it just sounds <laughs> so bizarre, doesn't it? 25 fresh heads and 25. <laughs> it's brilliant. Well, you'll <laughs> love this too. So Kali also wears the severed arms of all the so severs, <laughs> all the left, all the left hands of the Asura. So she basically Kali's main story is where she appears in the battle against Rakta Bija. So Rakta Bija is a, an Asura who gains this boon, like I said for last time, from Brahma, who every time that he's cut, his blood becomes another him, a full empowered him. So he's basically unkillable. So hey, you, could you just, just sorry, mate, just, you imagine whoever's um, 
writing these descriptions down like thousands of years ago. <laughs> Imagine what what the um, the perspective what? on just life in general. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. So you could say the asuras are not demons per se. They are more like lower consciousness. They are manifestations of the lower consciousness of the gods. I like that. So that's a more Buddhist or Shakta way of thinking of it. Like they, the asuras yeah. are part of Vishnu or are part of Shiva or are part of heaven. And then the goddesses appear to slay them to kind of quell those demonic impulses of the gods. Because yeah. really there is no difference because they all, like when you're reading the Puranas, they're all children of Kashyapa. They're all children of Brahma. So the idea of like the, the suras and the devas, like, yes, they are different and they have different factions and they have different powers. Like the asuras yeah. don't really have magic powers by themselves. Like they're very strong, like extremely physically strong. And they might have like a laser eyesight or some, you know, some like one, it's like a one trick. <laughs> yeah. Do you they, know what they, they sound like? Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, mate. You know what they sound like? Um, like, I, I said, not like quite like a cyclops, but like, um, I don't know if you've have you listened to the episode of the Big Eye Round from Orient. Yes. They are like, so, shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, that is what it is. But they're one trick ponies, but they only have one gross power, we'll say. They only have one thing. So they have to do the, yeah. the tapas, the ascetic practices to the gods to gain a greater sita, to gain a maha sita. Okay. So Rakta Beach basically does that. He performs a, a, like a ascetic practices for like a thousand and eight years. And one of the gods, I can't remember which one, it might be Shiva or it might be Vishnu or it might be Brahma. But anyways, it's one of those. He, they give him the bija that he's unkillable. Every time he's cut, he forms a new part of himself. He brings a whole army of Asuras. The gods can't deal with it. They throw, they basically, they manifest... Their prayers basically manifest Chandika. Chandika is the original name of Durga. We're going to talk about this next time, but so I won't get into it. But anyways, so she, oh. so she is the true Durga. So Durga is not really Durga. Durga is really Chandika. Anyways, it doesn't matter. People don't even have to remember that. But it's really important for later. But we'll get into it when we get into it. And uh, so she then manifests Kali as like a goddess who has her tongue sticking out. So every time Raktabija is cut by one of the yoginis, like the Mahavijas or the 64 yoginis who are in the battle, she kind of okay. drinks the blood. Okay. She drinks the blood of the Asura. So he can't, every time his, his blood spills, it doesn't spill onto the ground and create a new one. It, 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 she drinks it. So that's really her idea is that she does that. And she, and also because you have to think her tongue, her tongue is assigned an elemental value. So, you know, one of the things that I've realized during the series is that the Shakta Tantras look at the gross elements like fire, earth, air, wind, and void or Akasha. They look at them as gross elements. They do not look at them as gods. So even though they are assigned like God names and like, Persona, pers personalities and like the Vedas really place a huge importance on them. 
No, the Mahadevs really are greater than them, and they're also composites of them. So all of them exist, like I've always said, like there's the Yadhe Vadhe kind of formula that exists, but doesn't really ex apply to the top three. Like when we're doing Bina, Chokma, and Kether, it doesn't really apply to them. But, so anyway, so Kali is basically, she has all the elements, but her tongue is assigned Agni. So you could say that her tongue is like a portal, just like how Agni is the fire, the fire ritual of sacrifice to the gods. So he transmutes uh, everything into, from matter into a form that is consumable to the deities. So you could say that her yeah. tongue forms the same function. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, sorry. You know the the tongue Would you say it was anything uh, like a similar or relation to like the Omaki tongue, for example? Oh, the devil's naked tongue, so to speak. Sorry, you cut out for a second. It's okay. Would you, would you, yeah, would you say that there's a tongue? Um, it would be anything with relation to the Almaty tongue. Nobody says the, the Almaty tongue. So I'm not sure, so let me look into that, and then you can ask me the next episode, and then I'll have an answer for oh, you. Oh, yeah. Next one, mate. Yeah. So, it might not be me, but no. Sorry, say that again, generally? It might not be, but, you know, um, there seems to be uh, so many similarities. I think that anyway. really... No, I think that the similarities are probably are probably if people are finding it or you're finding it i i actually am more inclined to believe the similarities like i'm more inclined to think that it, it's a similarity right okay so that's just my perspective Sound me but um i think we covered a ton so if you want to call it now okay, we call yeah. it now so yeah maybe we have um, and you know something, Jim? I would say that um, the content we've covered tonight has been my favorite so far. Well, I uh, knew you would like I'm not even realistic. Even, you know, I didn't yeah. even talk about, <laughs> you know, Yamataka's consort. So I talked about like Vajra Kalaya's consort is Mahagauri, yeah. but Vajra um, Yamataka's consort is Vajra Vitali, who is the Diamond Thunder Vampire. So we didn't really get into that, but I knew you oh. and I meant to. So next time we'll definitely touch on that yes. a little bit. Yeah, we're gonna, I'll put start off with that one later. Yeah, maybe. Okay, we will. Just remind me. Yeah, yeah. I've got I've got uh, made a note of it anyway, but um, mate, it just gets better and better for me. Um, like I said, uh, I don't think there's anybody could have um, brought this this level of what, what you brought. Um, nobody else could achieve this one. Well, I appreciate it's, that. 
much. It was all because of you. Found some <laughs> random person on Twitter and you asked me to come on. And uh, obviously, I'll always be grateful. And hey, mate, I'll tell you what, did it. An amazing show. The conversations, mate, the conversations we were having before we even spoke. Um, I just knew there was something different. And what you were saying to me just um, blew my fucking mind, mate. And that was before we even spoke. Um, yeah, to to achieve this level of consistency, Jim, um, is not easy. Not easy at all. So, well, I'm so glad you're happy with it. I'm happy with it. I mean, I'll have to listen to it. Nails it up. Yeah. Um, and I think it's um, it's brilliant you're starting your own show. I've said that to you from the start, Anta. You should um, consider starting your own show when you're in. Well, everybody, you know, you've been you've been my biggest cheerleader for sure, hundred percent. Like, no, oh, thanks, man. You know, and and like uh, my other friend Ashley, like you and her, it's been like you, and then her, and like really just like telling me that I can do it. And then Headless Giant lately has been like very positive. Like he's been inviting me to do spaces on Twitter sometimes on Friday nights, and so you know, oh, everybody man, has. You know, I just thought it would help me with like my speaking and help me kind of like learn to articulate things in a shorter kind of like 30 minute little blurb of doing a deep dive. So it's been really good for me. And like, obviously, I wouldn't have been able to do it without like all the support and love. So I appreciate it so much, especially you. And you've helped me so much. And I feel like I've just come a long way from even our first episode. You know, you have, uh, you have indeed. like I said, and other people have noticed it as well. I've told you the feedback that I've got. Um, you know, every episode we do, it gets better than the last. It is, um, it's incredible, mate. And and to think when when we've covered what will be part eight next next month. Um, I mean, Jen, you know, it could just carry on and on. It is that fast. Um, I, I like I said, I'm surprised. I didn't realize it was um, so fascinating. You know, it's just a fully flushed out system with like many, yeah. like over, like I said, it's 1800 years. It's many different schools. It's many thousands yeah. of people doing it. It's all these different kinds of like the, it's like the, you know, they took a little bit of Sufism, they took a little bit of tribal practices, they took shamanism, they took um, Indian Tantra, they took like whatever Hinduism was at that time, like Durga, and, and they took the Vedic stuff, and then they took the Babylonian stuff, and the Parsis, which was what the Zoroastrians are called in India. So they took everything, and they looked yeah. at it, and they said, what are the similarities? So they're doing exactly what we're doing. They're just, they did it in a ritual way. But that's so much yeah. harder to do now. So I think the narrative I mean, way is actually just as good. Yeah, it's like it's it's what most uh, panties doing it. Like um, I mean, like the Romans heavy off the they take heavy off the Etruscans, and it, it that just goes throughout um, each pantheon. But this is just so um, so unique. You know, and, but the thing is with Buddhism, like we talked about, it has like, especially Tantric Buddhism, like what we're talking about specifically and Indian Tantra and Shakta Tantra, 
is that this has always been the magician's kind of religion. This is like, you want to talk about like, what is the true religion of like sorcerers? This is it. This is what it is. I mean, I'm not even the first to recognize it. I mean, you have Greg Kaminsky, who's like the OG, who's like an OG kind of magician. He wrote even a book on um, Nagandro on preliminary practice with Vajrasapa. So, yeah. you know, there are other people who have like recognized it and seen it, but you know, there is like, you come up against a wall kind of because the, you know, even for me, like I will say like it's sorcery and I will admit it fully. Yeah. Now it's taken me a little while to fully like acknowledge it honestly, but I can now, but, the reality also is, is like you run into a wall because you cannot really work with low spirits. You cannot really do that. There's a lot and you, and it's very difficult to, you really do have to watch like how you act in the world. Like you cannot just be like, you cannot just be left-handed. You have to really find the middle pillar. You have to find a balance in things. Balance. Yes, mate, the balance. Yes, we're all about me, isn't it? So... Yeah. Some people, I think, get frustrated with Buddhism because, like, Evola, like, you, you want to talk about, like, magicians, like, Julius Evola, he was really into Tantra, but he found Buddhist Tantra to be too difficult because, and it is, it's harder than even Shakta Tantra because Shakta Tantra, you can use bhakti, you can use, like, devotional love to kind of get to some of the spheres, or at least to the outer part of the sphere, and you can't really, you can do that in Buddhism, but it's really the preliminary practice. You're not really right. going anywhere. So it's so much harder. So you can achieve a lot more, I think, in the long run, but it yeah. can be a lot more challenging and people give up and you can't give up. So, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like it just, just that one part and you're talking, like if you were to do an hour a day, you're talking three years. That level of commitment is, and that's why the lamas, and that's why the lamas give that practice, because they are weeding out just like Dumavati. They are weeding out this, you know, the grain from the chafe. They are separating like who's going to make it and who's not. Because if you can't even do your Vajrasapa practice, how are you going to do a Vajra Kalaya? How are you going to do a Yamataka? How are you going to do Vajra Yogini? You want to talk about Kether? It's brilliant, mate, isn't it? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, everybody's going to love this episode, mate. Um, but we, do you know something, June? Uh, we still have got to release every the last year. Uh, yeah. So, so what what I'll do, mate, I'm, I'm, I've nearly finished the um, previous recording with it. Um, and then I will get this one out. When I'm when I'm up to, because I've got quite a couple of need to to work on. I've just been sidetracking on with fucking moving and all that malarkey. No, I totally yeah. get it. I only set up my bed this week, so I I totally understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's no problem no, at all. Yeah, nice one, mate. But yeah, I'm uh, much better um, where I am now than where I was, as you as you know. I know, and I'm really glad about that. And it's, you know, like, yeah. I'm cool. I, It's been, like, just, like, the journey to do it with you has been amazing. And, it, you know, it's not about, like, getting it done the fastest or, like, the most. 
and doing it every yeah. week even it's just about like that we do it and that we put it out and i'm really proud of it and yeah and, you know, yeah. and that's it yeah yeah um you know, man, I love doing it every week, every week, and this madness is brilliant. <laughs> I know, it is kind of great, to be honest. Love it. I love it, mate. Um, right, we're going up to... Oh, it's nearly four o'clock, mate. <laughs> I... Well, thank you so much for staying up with me and for doing that. Mate. I appreciate it so much. It's an honour to be speaking with you again, Jim. Um, I can't thank you enough, mate, uh, but... Before you go, mate, would you like to let everyone know where they could get hold of you and, and or, you know, plug your, um, plug your new Insta, mate? Okay, so I am on Insta now. So Threshold Saints, one word. Um, yeah, that's going to be my new thing. It'll be it'll, it's similar, going to be similar to Robbie, where he's doing long form kind of like storytelling. And but I'm not obviously going to cover Egypt or like anything that I'm not familiar with, kind of. So I'm gonna. It's going to be much more Asian. So I'm just gonna focus on Central Asia, East Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia, but more East and Southeast Asia. Obviously, we'll do. A, I'll do a lot of tantra, and you and I are gonna do some really cool interviews, and I'm really oh, yes, looking forward you. to those. And. Yes. Uh, I'm on Twitter for as long as that lasts at Wukong Reborn. <laughs> so, and I, yeah, I mean, um, I'm really proud of everything that we've accomplished. Honestly, I think it's been like pretty amazing and, you know, it's like kind of groundbreaking. I don't want to like up myself too much, but I think it's pretty fun. Cool. Sure, and... So fucking brilliant. Yeah. Um, so I'm proud of you, mate. How you come along, um, but I will say one thing on what you just said. Our um, threshold saints is going to be covering the the Asian side of things. That's brilliant, that mate. Because I don't don't know anybody who is covering that area per se. It's, you know, there's a couple people who are doing like there's one. He's a British guy. He lived in Taiwan for like 15 years. He is really good at Taoist sorcery. He oh, like, trained with a priest and stuff. I'm forgetting his name. He's really interesting. There's another guy who does um, Peter Jenks, who does the Thai stuff. He's also British. He like he he wrote a book on tattoos and magical like uh, and Thai Buddhism, like all their little oh, like magic things. So he's a really, you know, there are other people, but I think that I bring that perspective because it is my background. So I just feel like I'm able to kind of like um, talk about more things and it's also yeah, my university about, yeah. So I just think I'll bring that and I'll try and, you know, cover different topics in the, the whole esoteric of East Asia and Southeast Asia. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm sure everybody else will be now. Because, um, like I said, that's something that um, I've not had the opportunity of uh, listening to, really. And it's pretty now, rare. It's pretty yeah, rare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. It's going to be um, be fucking killing me. I can't wait. Um, but, yeah, once everything's set up, we'll let everybody know. Um, you know, but... Um, Jim... It's been an honor yet again, mate. Um, thank you very much, sir. Well, it's been an honor for me, like seriously. And nice one, mate. You know, 
people can do it. I didn't think I could do it. I honestly didn't. I thought I would do be a one and done. But, you know, I just want to say that, like, you can do it. People can do this. It's not, you know, you have to overcome the fear, just like we always talk about. Yeah. And I was definitely, like, quite fearful, but, you know. It's like when... Uh, um... When you get, uh, when you like, but I, I get nervous to spot me sometimes, and I think when, when for me anyway, when you're with the right people and, and you've got that, you've already got that connection with them, it makes a difference. You know, feeling comfortable um, is a huge part of it and just be yourself. I think that is the truth is you have to be, I mean, I find myself being more natural than I've ever really been with you now yeah. it, but it took me a long time it took me like a couple you know it took me at least three episodes to get there so you know just push through yeah. that's my yeah. advice and uh thank you so much general will be and i appreciate it so much anytime man. Man. and we'll do this again when we're gonna finish kali and we're gonna do the big girl we're gonna do vajraction <laughs> we're gonna do Vajra Yogini next time so people can you know look out for that one yeah yeah and we're gonna go to them black hat you yeah we'll finish up all the goddesses that you because they're really important and they actually do make an appearance at Kether so they're really so it all will tie in together Brilliant, mate. Brilliant. Um, Jim, thanks again, mate. Um, I love you, brother. I'm going to start recording now. I love you too. Thank you so much. Sounds good. Bye. Your chain and miss your eyes feels good.